and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that knows capitalism really, really fucks with our mental health. Today we have Zoe and Kellen. Today, as you might have just guessed, we're going to be talking about mental health. Uh, We have had a couple other episodes on this topic, including our Mental Health Under Capitalism episode that happened pretty early into the podcast's uh, history. And last year, we did the Surviving the Holidays episode where we talked to expert psychologist, my mom. (laughs) (laughs) But capitalism is really just the gift that keeps on giving. So today, we're going to go even more in depth on how it affects our collective mental health. And we have a special guest with us who is a licensed mental health and substance abuse counselor. Welcome, Sarah. Yay, welcome. Hi. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yes. Uh, So my name is Sarah. I am a licensed mental health and substance abuse counselor uh, currently living and practicing in Madison, Wisconsin. I have a little over 10 years of experience in the mental health field, uh, primarily focused in working in safety net settings. Um, And this work also was super core to my own radicalization. So it's something I'm extremely passionate about talking about from a socialist feminist lens. And I'm super excited to be here. Awesome. Thank you. Can you clarify just really quick what it means to work in safety net services? I was also going to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is a great question. A safety net setting, whether it's healthcare or mental health care, is uh, something that is for people who may not have the money to pay for it. They may be uninsured or underinsured. Um, It's not where like rich people with good insurance go to get their health care. So there's a lot of additional challenges that come with that, but it's something I'm really passionate about, which is bringing really good quality mental health care to people in that population. That's awesome. So how did you get into the mental health field? So my story is a little not typical. I've known that this is what I wanted to do since I was about 16. Um, My My mom also just is like, I've always wanted to be like a therapist. That's awesome. So but go on. Yeah, that's good to hear. (laughs) I first um, got a book about the Myers-Briggs personality type (laughs) for like my birthday when I was around like 16, like a junior in high school. (laughs) That's so cute. I like personality typed all my friends and family and all my teammates in my sports teams and then started kind of exploring like what kind of careers are there doing things like this and was always very fascinated by interpersonal relationships. That's awesome. It sounds like you're definitely in the right place. You've you mentioned when like you were introducing yourself that this work helped radicalize you. Can you talk like a little bit more about that process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up as a Republican. Um, all my like friends and family and everyone in my community was also kind of very conservative, um, had a very kind of happy, sheltered upbringing, um, like went to private schools and everyone around me really had their material needs met. So those views at the time made sense. It's like everyone has what they need and We don't really Mm. need much of a safety net. Um, You know, when small bad things would happen to people I know, it was like, oh, you know, you can go to church and people will help you with like 
getting meals when something bad happens in your family and little small things like that. Um, before I started working in my career, I had never really met anyone who hadn't had their basic needs met in fundamental ways, um, which sounds kind of naive, but that's where I came from. And then I went to college and kind of started meeting different people outside mm -hmm. the community I grew up in and started also working around the time I was about 20 in the mental health field. And for the first couple of years, it just blew my mind. Like, what is our world? We like <laughs> let people not have food and basic things. And it wow. was really this whole like identity crisis. So it changed like my political views and just my outlook on the world in general. And I came into it, you know, kind of naive, like, oh, yeah, the world's pretty good, but I want to help people. I know like counseling is a field that can help people. And I just had no idea what the world is really like. Yeah. Wow. Does that um, make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. And like, yeah, kudos to you at such a young age for like having an open enough mind to you know be receptive to the fact that like people were coming from different backgrounds than you were like there's a lot of a lot of people have a lot of trouble with that um so I think that uh, that's that's great and obviously you said you work in safety net services so you're working with people who come or a lot of them at least come from very different backgrounds than you did when you were growing up um, can you talk some about how you see capitalism affecting the people that you work with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the biggest thing that first comes to mind is how not having our basic needs met is going to exacerbate any mental health symptoms you have, or if you struggle with substance abuse, um, you know, things like if your housing is unstable, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, if you worry that you're going to lose your job and lose your insurance and then not be able to get medication for your chronic conditions, like even if you don't have kind of a uh, organic mental illness, like you might develop one if that's the situation that you're in and they really exacerbate each other. Um, mm -hmm. Like in school, the model we learn about is called the diathesis stress model, which means everyone has a certain genetic predisposition to certain types of mental illness. Like you might notice that in some families, like a lot of depression runs in the family or anxiety or whatever it is. And then the if you're looking at it on a graph, the other axis is the amount of stress in your life. So depending on what your genetic predisposition is and how much stress is in your life, that is what causes you to develop or not develop a, a mental illness. Mm -hmm. And some people's lives are so stressful that like they're pretty much going to develop a mental illness. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting that that that's like explains that, that that's um, like the clearest explanation that I think I've I've heard um, for how maybe like nature and nurture however you want to put it like work together to to create mental illness it makes me think of like ptsd and stuff for example like that there's certain life events that it's almost impossible for a person to go through and not get you know even if just for a short period of time like develop ptsd um anyway yeah that's that's fascinating yeah, absolutely. And I think we are learning a lot more about mental health as a society and about addiction and all of that. 
But there used to be this thought that like, oh, if you're having these symptoms, you're irrational. And every day I see people in my office where they're like, oh, I'm so anxious about this or that. Like, I just lost my insurance and now I can't, you know, afford these super expensive meds for my chronic physical health condition. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, yeah, any person would be anxious in that situation. Yeah, yeah, of course. And it's like the system that we have to function within if you already have anxiety, not that I'm speaking from experience or anything, (laughs) obviously, but it's like, it creates so much more anxiety. Like if I am going to see somebody because I have anxiety, but like in order to make that happen, I have to make like a dozen phone calls and I have to make sure, like get a bunch of stuff pre-cleared from through my insurance or go and then have to guess whether it's going to be like cleared through my insurance and then fill out a bunch of paperwork and mail it by hand to El Paso, Texas, like whatever. All of that is additionally like anxiety making, you know? And so the system itself is like creating the same problems that it's like trying to fix in theory. Um, insurance in, insurance and mental health do not go together. It, it's, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I go to like a low fee um, place that's sliding scale so I don't have to go through my insurance because I tried that and that did not work. So, yeah. Again, I definitely am not speaking from experience when I'm talking about having to print out forms (laughs) and mail them to El Paso. (laughs) Hypothetically to El Paso, Texas, where all the offices are. Definitely not a thing that I have to do, but it is, it makes me so anxious. Like, and it's like, this is what I'm getting treatment for, uh, what's going on. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, and, and just like paying up front for stuff and like that, like the idea of like, whether you can afford mental health care is anxiety making as well. There's so many things about the system that make it harder to get better. Um, and harder to like have have your your needs met, like you said. Um, to say nothing of like the other myriad ways that capitalism creates trauma in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just like this patchwork system too. Um, so a, another really common thing that I see that goes into especially recovery from substance uses, but also mental health. Um, if someone is struggling with that and then they start to get some help. Um, so in Wisconsin, our Medicaid is called Badger Care, and there's very strict income limits on how much you can make. So we have people, you know, coming to counseling and they get better from their mental health or substance use problem, and maybe they're able to work now, or maybe they're able to work full time or only before it was very part time. And then they lose their insurance and they have to stop coming to the services that help them get better. That's awful. Means testing is terrible. I hope you're listening and taking notes, Elizabeth Warren. Let me just say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, so I think also something, especially with substance use, is like the carceral state um, Mm -hmm. and just like you know, criminalizing people who use drugs versus any sort of, like, uh, rehabilitation programs. How does that, like, fit in with your line of work? Yeah, that is one of the most frustrating things is how much we criminalize both mental health and substance use, but substance use especially. Yeah. Uh, Just, um, like, 
having, you know, whether it's possession of a substance or I didn't know this until recently, if the police find you, they run into you and you are, you have illegal drugs in your body. You don't have any like around you. That is also a crime. And then you go to jail and then you've got a criminal record and not to mention the way that that re-traumatizes you just being in the carceral system is such a traumatizing thing. Um, I mean, I even just go into our jail locally for my work. Um, My workplace has a program where we have counselors that go in the jail and meet with people and kind of tell them about our services and how they can get connected with our services when they get out of the jail, um, which is great. It's a tiny bit of harm reduction, but like when I have to go there for meetings and stuff like that, I just look around and I'm like, I hate you all, like all the people that work there. Um, It's a lot of middle-aged white men on a power trip and the way they treat the people who are housed in the jail, it is, it bothers me so much. I cannot imagine being there for even a day and having all the other humans around treat me like that. And then you've got a person who's already in a mental health crisis and they go to this incredibly traumatizing place and then they hopefully get out of jail and are trying to, you know, get back on their feet, but they probably lost their job while they were in jail for a couple days or what have you. And now they have a criminal record. And so getting any kind of benefits, the ability to do that is much, much harder when you have any kind of criminal record. And so it feels like they're fighting such an uphill battle to try to do anything. And it's like, oh, we want people to be productive members of society, but no, you can't have a job because you have a criminal record. And even just the bullshit of like being a productive member of society, that's a whole other thing, but. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like too, that, that part of functioning under capitalism does create all this stress and alienation sort of as we've, we've been hinting at throughout this and it, it creates conditions in which substance abuse are also much more likely. Um, You know, if you think about like, the if and also obviously like we've talked about capitalism creates conditions in which mental health issues are much more likely and one of the ways that people who don't have access to quality care basically self self treat when you have mental illness is is through substance abuse and so we're also functioning in a situation where like substance use is like almost and for a lot of people like an almost necessary means of survival in like this capitalist hellhole and when that gets criminalized and then through criminalization people who are already dealing with mental health issues then are put into the prison system you just you have this vicious circle that gets just worse and worse and worse and all of the all of the problems are exacerbating each other as well yeah but yeah like one of the things this that I think about is like and I heard this a ton growing up Sarah it sounds like we grew up in like relatively similar environments I I my like my mom who primarily raised me is like a liberal so I had I did have like my house was this little oasis of liberalism but I grew up in an environment where people did have their material needs met like Everybody was super conservative, basically outside my house. Um, And like the way that people that I grew up around talked about homelessness is just disgusting. 
And like one of the things, you know, the really common rationalizations for not, you know, for for refusing panhandling basically is like, well, they're just going to like spend it on drugs or alcohol. And like, yeah, maybe they are. Like maybe somebody is if you like are unhoused like and you for example have to spend a night on a street wouldn't it be a lot easier if like you were a little stoned i yeah. i just you like no, and that, so i yeah, I, yeah and, and so all of these all of these issues are i mean i'm not i'm not saying anything new here but all of these issues are so compounding um yeah and and one completely feeds into the other and while like Sarah the stuff that you're doing is so important it's also just like the the systems that we have as you're saying are really inadequate to deal with them yeah absolutely and going back to the radicalization like I think that's Mm -hmm. what really because I was part of the social safety net if you will and, and it's like wow this is terrible it's like trying to catch fish with a net that has 10 foot wide holes and how um, does that how does that feel to like is that frustrating to like see like know sort of what the solutions need to be but like not be able to make like meta changes yes absolutely and I do think it's a both and like Mm -hmm. in the code of ethics for counselors and social workers it says something and it's kind of you know watered down as for your, to be palatable to all like white liberals or whatever, but (laughs) that we should be out in the community Mm -hmm. advocating. So like myself and my peers in this field, especially do, um, I mean, that's what drives the political work that I do, whether it's testifying at our local government about why we need more funding for mental health or Mm -hmm. organizing with community organizations. Like, I feel like I can't not at least do a little bit of that, like knowing what I know about the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's like so important. That's so important too. Um, uh, I just, yeah, I can't imagine how like difficult it must be for you on like your level to, to like see all these issues and to be, like you said, trying to catch fish with this net that you've been given. And like, it's so important, the work that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for doing it. I know one thing that we haven't talked about really yet is like gender. And I don't know, maybe you could talk a little bit about like who you're working with, but I'm sure that sort of writ large, the kind of people who are very likely to need the kinds of services that you and your colleagues provide are um, women who, um, you know, have trouble with abusive partners and stuff like that. And there's such a significant connection between like homelessness among women and like domestic abuse and violence and that kind of stuff. So I don't know if that's something you wanted to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, really early on in my career, I noticed it anecdotally, and I actually did, while I was working on my master's, I did my internship at a rape and domestic abuse center in South Dakota, which wow. was such a good experience, but also such a, like, shitty experience. Yeah. Like, what is life? Um, like, the cause of so many people of any gender seeking mm-hmm. services is these abusive men in their life, whether it's a father figure, you know, mother's partner growing up, a partner of their own, like that is, I like will sort of joke about that. I was like, if these abusive male figures would just stop like abusing people, we would have like no business. Mm. And I mean, that's so true. 
And it's such an uphill battle. I don't think I even realized it to the extent when I was just practicing on my own. But within the last year, I became a clinical supervisor. So I, in addition to seeing my own uh, clients, I supervise a team of 10 other clinicians. And part of my job is assigning clients to them, you know, making a good match. And of Mm. course, putting together the patchwork quilt of who can bill this insurance and who can bill this one super specific grant that we have from the county and this specific money from the federal government. And, um, but anyway, how many times it comes up that, uh, like of the, of the team of 10, I supervise there's two males on that team. The rest are identified as women. And so many people, you know, before even meeting their counselors say, oh, I don't want to see a man because yeah. I'm seeing services because this abusive male figure in my life. Like that'll come up like hundreds of times. It feels wow. like literally once someone has not wanted a female counselor because they had an abusive female figure. So that's not to say that women and people of other genders aren't abusive, but it's so disproportionate, especially in the kind of actions that cause people to seek mental health services because they have trauma. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're living, we live in a capitalist patriarchy that, you know, unfortunately gives men, frequently men power over partners, over families um, in ways that enable them to um, create harm for others. uh, And, yeah, I guess part of the bigger program has to be like eliminating if, you know, if you diffuse power, if you eliminate these specific sort of sources of power, then it becomes a lot more difficult for people to abuse one another. Um, but yeah, it makes total sense that like that's that's the experience that people are having. And like, I mean, also just thinking about other like axes of oppression under capitalism, like I don't know the extent to which you work with like people who are queer or transgender, but like, obviously, like, especially transgender kids are at such risk of ending up homeless, like being kicked out of their homes, being kicked off their parents' insurance, like they're, and obviously like, you know, needing to access mental health resources because of um, the various like forms of oppression that they're subjected to. Um, I don't know if that's something you work with. And I know, I know friend of the pod, Rosie, um, when they lived in New York, um, they were on our UK politics Patreon only episode. Sorry, haters. Um, when they lived in New York, <laughs> they uh, worked for an organization that like helped like um, I think especially uh, like queer teens and um, like young people with AIDS uh, to find education and like. Um, employment resources I don't know if there's like a mental health aspect or not but I know that like that's just like a huge at-risk population as well yeah absolutely and unfortunately sometimes well not sometimes often the system itself that they're trying to seek help in re-traumatizes people that have various marginalizations Mm -hmm. um even as simple as the name if you are transgender and you have a different name than like what the insurance company knows you as. Oh, wow. That's yeah. how you have to be in the system. And we do all these like weird, crazy workarounds to make something pop up when like uh, someone checks in to say, you know, address them by this name. Um, but it's again, like the systems aren't set up to be that way. And there's only male and female insurances, again, for like billing purposes and for Medicaid. Oh, wow. 
you have to classify people in that way. And then we have like these other uh, fields where we record it for ourselves, but for um, an agency like where I work and where I have worked, we're largely dependent. A lot of our funds do come from the county, from the state, from the federal government. And so there's these regulations that you have to follow, like classifying people into the binary and calling them by the legal name. That's crazy. Do you feel like your colleagues are, I mean, I know that another thing is, is that like, it can be a challenge. Obviously I can't speak to a lot of things, but I know like, you know, with my experiences that even like, it can be hard as a queer person to find like competent care. But I know that like, if you are, somebody who is transgender, like finding competent care, finding a provider that like is able to understand you is really important. I know that I've talked to like, um, uh, friends of mine who are people of color who are like, who it's been really important to them to have like a therapist who is a person of color as well, who understands sort of their background. Like, do you feel like your colleagues are mostly on board with like, um, you know, and, like, understand the challenges that the people that you're working with face? That is a really interesting question. Um, There's a both and. (laughs) Like, one thing I really enjoy about working in settings like I work is that my colleagues have this, like, shared care for people Mm. who are maybe facing different marginalizations, and we all take a lot of trainings to learn about this. Um, However, the flip side of it is to be a counselor, there's huge barriers, um, like the vast majority of especially master's level counselors and social workers are white women mm. from fairly privileged backgrounds. Um, reason for that being, it's expensive. You have to get a master's degree and sim- it's different than other graduate degrees where there really aren't like research assistantships or other ways of paying for it. Like you almost always are paying for it out of pocket or taking out student loans for the whole cost of your master's degree. Um, And as part of getting that master's degree, you have to do an unpaid internship, which usually is nine months to a year. And there's in most settings, there are actually like prohibitions that you can't get paid for that. And also people just offer unpaid internships. So you imagine if you're a person already facing some marginalizations, like getting into this field is very hard. And that is why we end up with a situation where most of the counselors are, you know, white women from a certain background. And like, I I say this as a white woman from that background, like I wish that there was a much more diverse representation amongst therapists. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. My parents are both therapists, um, which is wild. We don't have to go into that. But <laughs> the point being, um, when I know that some, uh, my mom works with a lot of like queer couples, that's one of her specialties, and like tries to kind of make sure to like put certain like keywords in her bio so that people, when they're looking, will like know. Um, But when I was working at a magazine, which I won't say the name of, um, we had a pitch. So we would, like, go – well, I didn't go through the pitches. I was just lowly on the totem pole, but I would listen to them go through the pitches for, like, the print magazine. And one of them was um, from a psychologist who wanted to write, like, tips for, like, people of color and women and queer people to, like, find a therapist that won't, like – 
even just do like microaggressions, not necessarily being like overtly racist or something. Um, like mm-hmm. I had a therapist mm-hmm. who like a lot of my friends are queer and when I would like use their like they pronouns, she would be like, what? What's that? Who? And I was like, it, like, it's so hard to just like talk to you about my life when you're like constantly making me explain like gender <laughs> politics to you. <laughs> this isn't helpful as a therapist. But anyway, so the pitch was like, yeah, tips for helping people navigate that. And a lot of the people working at this magazine were like white women. And they were just like, well, how hard is it? Like, it can't be that hard. Like, if you're black, go to a black therapist. And it's like, no, you don't necessarily have to go to a therapist that like is the same identity as you just want to know that they're not gonna like say weird things or like use microaggressions and stuff like that. So yeah, I think that's definitely a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of gets back to the thing where if you have resources and, you know, if I've got 200 bucks in my pocket an hour to pay whoever, I can just like scour my area for the best therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you are dependent on more of a safety net system, like that's just not how it works. And I, I think mental health professionals should be obligated to be at least like reasonably well-versed in identities so they don't perpetuate microaggressions but yeah you would hope so but (laughs) it's not the case and it's so unfortunate and there's always just like more to be learning like um you know in the last few years I've gotten to know people who are in um like uh, consensual non-monogamous or polyamorous relationships and talking about how therapists know nothing about that and assume that you know, that structure in itself is abusive or on the flip side, don't recognize abuse because it's just like, oh, okay, that's always good and nothing bad could ever happen in a polyamorous relationship Um, because the way that abusive behaviors would show up is like a little bit different than, you know, a monogamous two-person relationship. So like as professionals, we need to educate ourselves about like what that looks like, like poly 101 and what have you. But so many people don't. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. Also, like, also one thing with, I've been to a lot of therapists, but one of them that I did not particularly like, I was telling her about, like, I'd gone on a few dates with this person and they were being, like, really intense and, like, coming on really strong and it was, like, weirding me out. And she was just like, well, a lot of women, like, that's what they want and they would be, like, really flattered that, like, he's so into you. Oh, oh my God. So, yeah. I hate that. Yeah, it was obviously has scarred me and I stopped going to her. I was like, okay, yeah, not this is not going to work out for me. She also it's, like didn't remember any from week to week, just like did not remember a single thing that I said. It's surprising how ill-equipped some people are to deal with like even basic stuff yeah. in like mental health professions. I mean, I had um a therapist that I went to who was also a psychiatrist and maybe it would have been better for me to just see her for my hashtag OCD meds. Um, I don't know why I hashtag that. Just trying to be lighthearted and fun here. Um, <laughs> uh, and like I, while I was seeing, like while I was seeing her, I some had like a pretty serious trauma. Going to just like, if you are listening right now and you don't want to hear about like, serious traumas maybe just fast forward like 30 seconds a minute um but I was I was drugged and assaulted by a guy that I work with um 
And I went to see her like in the immediate, basically the immediate aftermath when I was still in shock. I didn't know what happened. And she basically convinced me it was my fault. And like, I was, I mean, I ended up not seeing her, but the amount of damage that did to me and like my getting over that really serious, like traumatic incident, I like can't overstate it. And it was just because like this person that I was trusted to be like a mental health professional told me basically the worst possible thing that you can tell somebody when something like that happens to them. And it's like, how are you not trained to like not do that? Like there, there's so many things you could do. And that was the worst possible option out of literally all of them, you know? And like, I just, it's really good to hear that at least like, there, I mean, and I, I have had re- my like current person that I see is amazing. So yeah, but it's it's good. It's always good to hear and like heartening to hear stories about mental health professionals who are working really hard to like get it done and yeah. like do things right. And like, granted, this was like a psychiatrist in Manhattan, so like, I don't know who the hell knows. Maybe all she was like seeing were like Upper East Side women who needed Valium. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, that that is a real thing. First of all, I'm so sorry that happened to you, and that's absolute terrible incompetence on your provider. (laughs) So Uh, bad. (laughs) I do notice, though, sometimes, like, people who are very prestigious in the mental health field, you know, you'll go to a talk to hear them speak or go to their training or whatever, and you get this vibe. It's like, you work with, like, a lot of wealthy white people, don't you? And, again, that's the thing where when you get a certain level of notoriety, you can open up a clinic where you just choose the the people you see and you see a lot of very privileged people. And that definitely does, you know, impact your um, way of looking at at life, Um, not to – you know, excuse that practitioner. Oh, no, no. I mean, it would, like, make sense if that was kind of what was happening. She wasn't on the Upper East Side, just, like, I don't know. Anyway, it was a it was a real freaking mess. But um, she's not somebody who was, like, a trauma person. And I know that there, there are people who are, like, trauma-specific. And I ended up seeing one of them, and it's been great. So, yeah. But, like, even I, as an untrained professional, know that the number one thing you would do is validate someone. (laughs) I sometimes do pretend that I am somewhat trained just because both of my parents are therapists, but I'm not. (laughs) I'm like, well, I know know a lot about it, you know? Well, the interesting thing is, too, like, the basis of research in psychology and in mental health and in substance abuse is all done by white men on white men. Mm. Um, even the very few positive changes we've seen in the addiction world recently, um, like the addiction world was invented by white men and it was fairly recent. It was like mid 1900s when AA started, which like, I'm not going to bash AA. It's done a lot of good things for people. But if you are, you know, a woman or a person of color or a person with marginalized identities, they very often have a really bad experience with AA. And that's, again, because it was geared towards white men and 
if you read the the big book is like their main book for Alcoholics Anonymous, and it sounds like a white man from the fifties yelling at you. Oh. Yeah, and I mean it's like very faith based. I like I know people that also have had like a great experience with it, but yeah, it's for like a very specific, you know, it's very specifically geared. Yeah, like we didn't think as a society, like maybe we should develop different interventions. You know, different people have different needs. Um, and even like trauma research has almost exclusively been done on veterans of war, male mm-hmm. veterans, um, which again, not to downplay the terrible trauma that they go through, but if you take just numbers, there's something like, I'm kind of bad with numbers, but I'm estimating if I'm remembering the statistics correctly, there's like three times the number of sexual assault survivors than there are, you know, survivors of military trauma, yeah. Well, it's like it's like a shocking number of people who experience sexual assault, like more than like a like serious, you know, really violent sexual assault or rape. Like, I think it's like 90 percent of people or something like that develop PTSD symptoms, even if just for a few months. Um, and like the number of people who experience sexual assault is unfortunately crazy high. Um, and, you know, additionally, obviously, like there are there are things that put you at higher risk for experiencing something like assault um you know homelessness for example um like homeless people are experience assault of like physical assault or sexual assault at incredibly high rates transgender people experience you know sexual and physical violence at incredibly high rates um and so frequently also it's like trauma compounds as well yeah absolutely and the other thing about the mental health field the uh, interventions that we have to be helpful for trauma um, were all sort of uh, developed around this idea of a singular traumatic event so I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I'm, I'm a survivor of rape, which occurred when I was in my early 20s. And it was horrible, terribly traumatic, but it was a one-time event that occurred. I left that place where that occurred and went back to my life where my you know material needs were met. There were no other unsafe people around me who were going to hurt me. I you know went and sought services for that. Um, and the healing process for something like that is very different than if you are in a situation day in and day out where you're constantly unsafe. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the therapies around PTSD are helping your body realize that like you were unsafe in that moment when the trauma was occurring and you're safe now. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of really great therapies for that. But for a lot of people, they're not safe now because of capitalism, whether it's, you know, racism or they're constantly in an abusive relationship that they can't leave for whatever reason, um, whether that partner supports them financially, supports their children, has their insurance. So like the therapies don't work very well if that is your situation. And that's the situation that capitalism puts so many people in. Wow. Yeah, that's really, really well said. And like, I didn't realize that about the thing that you that you said about like relying on the idea that like you were unsafe then, but you're safe now. Um I didn't I never put together that like that was sort of an underlying theme in the way that we talk about like PTSD and healing from PTSD um but yeah 
you're so, I mean, obviously you're right. You're an expert, but like, you're so right, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, and it makes total sense to me that that wouldn't be effective for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. So another thing we wanted to talk about in terms of capitalism and mental health is um, about grieving. And no, I'm not talking about the grief that comes when Liz Warren drops out of the presidential race. Ha ha. Um, but like, honestly, stop. So, <laughs> but no, grief from losing a loved one, um, losing a pet, uh, even like a breakup can feel super heavy and like a huge loss. Um, and capitalism definitely exacerbates that by like, for instance, having only a three day bereavement period. And then it's like, all right, get back to work, like go be productive again. Um, and like, yeah, you're just expected to kind of return to things as normal and you're still dealing with all of these other like confounding things of capitalism as we've been talking about. Um, so is that something that you kind of deal with in your practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the grieving process is such a long and complex one and our society is not set up so people can take time with their emotions. Yeah. Um, Like you said, you got to, I mean, three days off. I think that sounds generous compared to what most people have. Um, Like three days is like what it takes to like plan and execute like a funeral, you know, like you're still, if you're somebody who's really close to someone who's passed, for example, if you're like, the next of kin or the spouse or whatever like those three days are days that you're working like anyway I I just even that is like it's you don't that's not even necessarily getting time with your feelings yeah yeah totally yeah absolutely and in kind of an ideal world one thing that we as therapists encourage people to do is to really feel their emotions Mm -hmm. and just like sit with that um so much of what we try to do is numbing which again kind of gets back to the substance use but even mental health behaviors like self-harming by cutting even suicide ideations can be sort of an escape fantasy for people to escape the situation they're in which is really quite reasonable given the situations that, you know, even talking about someone who has dealt with the loss of a loved one or is grieving the fact that they had a trauma, like a sexual assault, like um, it's very understandable why someone would feel that way. Like, and that's what I tell people, like, it's, it's not good. And I want to help you uh, be safe, but like, I totally understand why you feel that way. Um, but anyway, if you cannot take time off work because your work doesn't give you time off or you're going to lose your job or even face punitive measures if you're not performing up to the productivity that you're expected to, um, you don't have the luxury of feeling your feelings. Like you need to just kind of stuff them down to get through the day. Mm -hmm. And that's when it's very easy to perhaps develop a substance use habit that is hugely tied to trauma, especially when you're talking about um, more severe um, substance use disorders And it's like, yeah, that was pretty reasonable that you developed that pattern of behavior to help you cope with your situation. Yeah, it's like literally like that's self-preservation at that point. Like in some ways, that's an adaptive response um, to like a really fucked up situation. Yeah, it was like that was a coping skill that Mm -hmm. you tried. And then we again, kind of getting back to the discussion before about criminalizing it, it can start this whole Mm -hmm. terrible cycle. Mm, yeah. 
One other thing um, that this ties into that I wanted to be sure to mention is I, you know, bashed on abusive men before, but um, one area of practice that I've really loved getting into is working with men, especially older men, you know, that are kind of middle-aged. And what I hear all the time is some extent of, you know, I was told growing up to be a man, to not cry, not have feelings, to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I wasn't taught how to like have a healthy relationship and now I'm like trying to do that, but I have no idea why. And this is why I was drinking or was using X substance. And it's just, you, you feel so much for these men. It's like, oh, being a man in our capitalist patriarchal society is terrible. Like you don't get to feel your emotions. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good and, and like an important point that can get lost sometimes in our, Yeah the way that we talk about things. <laughs> yeah, it, it can be hard to feel sympathetic to men sometimes, you know, but, but, but yes, patriarchy hurts all of us. Yeah. So speaking of patriarchy um, <laughs> and capitalism, if we did away with those and lived in our ideal socialist feminist utopia, which we are working on achieving, <laughs> um, what would, what do you think that mental health care would look like? Like, what's the ideal model for that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the biggest things would be more therapists. Um, I mentioned in recent years, um, there's been a lot of people gaining awareness about mental health and more people are seeking therapy than ever before, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, here's looking at you, Zennials and Millennials. Um, are <laughs> Not stigmatizing of therapy, but there's a huge nationwide shortage of therapists. Um, and so that leads to wait times for services. And just when you do seek out services, there, there might be a long wait. The services are very scarce. And then also that dynamic I mentioned before of the professionals in the therapy field are not diverse. It is dominated by white women. If you go to kind of the doctoral level, it's dominated by white men. The master's level is white women, whether it's master's in social work or counseling or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, so more therapists that represent the population. And I think that's so tied to, you know, this idea of free college and student debt relief, because that would allow people who want to take this path to do so without being in huge insurmountable debt. Um, and then as you probably know, the therapy field like doesn't pay that well compared to other fields that you have to have a graduate degree for. Um, so that's just a huge barrier. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like in the process right now of, um, <laughs> deciding to possibly get a master's in social work and figuring out funding. So that, um, yeah, very much hits close to home for me right now. I think another really important aspect is that we need true Medicare for all um, because I mentioned a little bit before of the so many insurance issues and just, again, this this patchwork quilt of, like, I'm so, sorry, I've used that analogy before, but I can't think of a better analogy. Um, you've got all these different networks you've got a certain insurance and so you've got to go to this specific doctor for your primary care well the only mental health option is this other one so maybe you switch your insurance so you can go to that well now you have no primary care 
And the amount of energy that goes into that, not into providing more innovative patient care. Um, again, I mentioned in my role as a supervisor, like I hate how much time and energy I have to spend being sure that, you know, people are matched with therapists who can bill their particular funding source, which might be that, um, again, there's kind of this neoliberalism around safety net services. Um, like if you have what's called commercial insurance, like insurance that you purchase or insurance you get through your employer, it's much, much easier. It's still harder than it should be, but you go to a therapist, you say, oh yeah, I'm kind of anxious. And they say, okay, I diagnosed you with anxiety. Let's talk you go from there. Paperwork is pretty minimal. Sometimes there's prior offs and stuff, depending on how shitty the insurance plan is. But if you are dependent on this more like safety net funding, which might come from the federal government and then trickle down through the state or what have you, the way they give it out is so neoliberal. They're like, here's a really specific amount of money, but the only people who have this must be, you know, between age 30 and 40 and be this ethnic makeup and have an opioid problem. And then oh it's like, gosh. oh, we've got this person who has a problem with alcohol, but they could really benefit from these services. Well, no, 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 they can't have this funding source. They have to have this other funding source. And Jeez. it's just, again, the, the amount of time and energy that goes into that versus can we just accept as a society that we have people with like mental health and substance use needs and let's fund that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm sure another thing too that would be really helpful is like access to not access in the like neoliberal sense where it's like, well, it's not that we're giving you care. We're just giving you the option of maybe having care, but like also having services that are distributed more evenly. Like I think about like how hard it is, you know, for friends that I have who live in rural areas to get access to mental health services. Um, and especially like, you know, if like the there's two therapists in your very small town one of them doesn't take your insurance and one of them sucks like you know then what do you do um like you have to drive whatever 45 minutes an hour just to like get to your mental health appointment and like if that is only happening during business hours like does that mean you have to take three hours off from your job to like just to see uh, you know, a mental health care provider, we also have to have, in addition to like having those resources spread more evenly, like we would also need to have like, um, you know, the kind of like job flexibility where mental health is valued and it's understood that like any kind of health care is like important and that, that you, you get time to do those kinds of things and take care of those kinds of things for yourself too. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I see that you had a note about police. Is there, I don't know the answer to this. Is there, uh, are you obliged to like contact police if clients tell you like certain things? No, that's not uh, quite, I, I, I would protest okay. that and okay. not do it. <laughs> Um, but it's the way the mental health system and the criminal justice system are so kind of simpatico with each other right now. Um, things like when there's someone out, you know, just in public in your town having a mental health crisis, the police are going to get called. Right. And like they have almost zero training in how to approach that situation. Um, and even I mentioned like a lot of the programs at the place where I work at work very closely with the criminal justice system 
you have to kind of collaborate with the police in a certain extent. Yeah. And I wish the systems could be just like totally separate. And there is a little bit of a level of understanding. Like when I have worked with the police and, you know, in the field, we'll encounter someone having some sort of a mental health crisis. Like there's oftentimes on their part, it's like, Oh, you go talk to them first. Like, you know what you're kind of doing here. You have some training in that. But, um, yeah, like, my workplace maintains a crisis line that people can call uh, 24-7 and get help with, you know, suicide or other crises. But they do, they kind of necessarily have to collaborate with the police. Like, I would love us to have a robust society where we have mental health services, which are not tied to the police. Yeah. Fuck the police is not the position of Sarah's employer. It is, however, the official position of Season of the Bitch. So. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, we don't have Laura on here to say her yas. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so we're coming up on time, but we like to leave people with something helpful or uplifting in the end. So since we do not yet have our utopia and Medicare for all and all of those things, what resources or advice do you have for folks who maybe don't have access or aren't able to regularly see someone because of time or et cetera constraints? Yeah, absolutely. The one bright spot is there are a lot of good resources as a result of us having the internet and us having a lot more people who are talking about mental health and recovery and uh, substance use um, and the decreasing of that stigma. But the internet is the biggest one. Um, there's so many. Um, unfortunately, there's also misinformation. But uh, so many people have found uh, help just by even Googling. Um, one specific resource I'd like to shout out is NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, that's N-A-M-I. So folks can just go to their website and they have like I would endorse all their information. It's very good and accurate information about various mental health diagnoses. Um, I do think self-diagnosis is very valid because professional medical diagnosis is not accessible for people. So if people are able to find, you know, even Googling their symptoms and finding, reading about various mental illnesses online and sort of seeing that that resonates with their experience, you can find some really helpful resources that way. Um, one other like thing I would shout out is CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. It's something that's fairly simple. There's a lot of free resources online and it's very easy to kind of self teach. Again, it would not be as ideal as having professional services, but, um, I know that for a lot of people, that's not a possibility. Um, and then just relying on the people around you. The thing about mental health crises is people still like have no idea how to be helpful. And I think a lot of us have people in our lives who, if we were having something like that, they would want to be helpful, but would have no idea how to do that. Um, so feeling like you can reach out to your support system. If you have a person that you can say like, Hey, I'm, I'm really depressed. Could you just come over and sit with me and maybe we'll like sit in the dark and watch a movie together, but I really don't feel like being alone or um, whatever it is that you need. Um, again, because of the isolation of capitalism, some people don't have as robust 
of a support network, but um, that's one thing I would advise. Um, and then a final, like, I guess, piece of advice would be, um, here's your little one nickel therapy tip for the day. Um, the idea of behavioral activation. So when we don't feel well, the thing that is going to make us feel better is oftentimes one of the hardest things to do. Um, so for example, if you're really depressed, like we know that going for a walk or exercising is going to be helpful, but sometimes that feels absolutely insurmountable because you're depressed or because you have whatever mental health symptom. Um, so the idea of behavioral activation is just breaking that down into smaller and smaller steps uh, and just being like, okay, the first thing I'm going to do is just put my shoes on. That's all I'm going to do. If I don't feel like going to for a walk after that, I succeeded in that goal and giving yourself kind of grace with that. Um, and then working towards taking small steps towards doing those things that you know are going to be helpful, but that there can be so many barriers to do because capitalism. Yeah. One other thing that I would add in terms of like, if there's insurance or like financial block is I know, um, for my mom, like my mom always talks about this and like advises people, like if people email her and are like, Hey, I don't have money to pay for therapy, but like, I really need it. Um, like, she's very open to that. She's had a patient for years that pays her in, like, hand-knit scarves, which are lovely. Um, and, like, therapists that genuinely want to help people often are open to, like, trying to, you know, hit an agreement with you. Like, I go to a low-fee place where at our first session we, like, talked about, like, where I'm at financially and kind of agreed on, like, what would work for me. Um so yeah, if you think that you really could benefit from it, like, you know, try to reach out to people. You never know. Yeah, that's a really good point. Most places do have a sliding scale or a certain number of like people that they'll see for free. Um, so I think it's easy to assume like, oh yeah, I don't have insurance, so I can't do that or whatever. Um, like I mentioned, like my workplace sees people that don't have insurance at no cost to them and a lot of like the private practices will take on uh, different people that are underfunded. Um, again, because capitalism, it's like a smaller amount, but it, it's definitely out there at a vast majority of therapy clinics. Um, the only other like encouragement I would give is like, if you're thinking about it at all, like, oh, therapy might be helpful, like reach out earlier rather than later. I think a lot of people assume that, oh, if I, call a therapy place and try to get therapy. I'll be able to like start that week or next week. Um, in most places, it's a wait of a few months, like anywhere from two to six months. It can vary a lot based on the insurance you have and how many therapists there are in your area. But that can feel like a lifetime when you are dealing with mental health symptoms. Um, so just not being, again, totally not blaming the person who's in this situation, but not being afraid to reach out before you're at this like absolute crisis point. Oh, well said. Um, I think we're about at time. So yeah. I just want to say, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been awesome getting to talk to you about this. And thank you for all the work that you do. It's so important. Yeah, thank you for having me on and letting me talk about this. And I'm also just having a little bit of a fangirl moment because I'm <laughs> a OG. <laughs> <of> the bitch. <laughs> 
I'm pretty sure Sarah was like literally the first person to ever buy Season of the Bitch merch. Like, not an exaggeration. You were at our first live show in Chicago. It was awesome to get to meet you, like, what, two and a half years ago when we did that? And it's really cool to finally, like, have you on and get to hear you talk about the stuff that you're passionate about. So, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, that was an awesome conversation. Um, so glad that Sarah reached out to us and just was like, hey, I have a lot to say on this topic. I would love to come on. So yes. if you have a topic that you really want to talk to us about, you can email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Um, yes. yes, you can also uh, follow us and reach out to us via social media. We're at Season of the Bee on Instagram and Twitter and kind of Facebook. Don't message us there. Um, what else? No one's on Facebook <laughs> except the boomers, okay? Yeah. You can. We love rate... you, boomer listeners, <laughs> if you exist. Yes, if any boomers are listening, hello, you're the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably my mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> Once I tell her that I gave her a shout out, she'll, she'll listen. Love but that. yeah, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. You can join our Patreon. We've been. Up in our game, we have a Mike Bloomberg shit talk episode, um, our roasteds, we have the UK election one that Kellen mentioned on this episode, we have us talking about Taylor Swift, really everything you want on our Patreon. And I think that's it besides just saying that I love you. I love you too. Oh, but also oh. Season of the Stoner, <laughs> real quick. Oh, Yes. We do have a special thing going on right now. We're trying to get 100 new Patreon patrons um, of $4.20 or more. (laughs) Nice. Yes, very (laughs) nice. Um, Before 420. And if we hit that, then uh, some of us are going to be on a special stony episode. So check that out but you can only we'll only release it via pa- patreon so you got to be a patron uh yeah so yeah, we you did it have last not... year so last oh. year's is also on patreon you can check it out it was we had a lot of fun it was very ridiculous <laughs> i was not on it but it was a lot of fun to listen to highly <laughs> recommend um yeah so hit us up on patreon if you haven't already uh we're patreon.com slash season of the bitch uh yeah i think that's about it Lo- lovely talking to you as always zoe All right. Love you. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch.